Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn and as always, it's a pleasure to have your company. Coming up this week, we look at the future of foreign reporting. As journos work across multiple countries and numerous organisations, how has reporting changed and where exactly are we heading? In the last week, an Australian freelance foreign correspondent, Lynn O'Donnell, made headlines after being detained by the Taliban in Kabul. One year on since the United States left Afghanistan and the Taliban took over, Lynn had returned to the country to see for herself what was happening, but ended up being taken into custody and then interrogated by the Taliban, who claimed she falsified media reports. They threatened that she would face prison if she did not publicly retract the reports and at times insinuated she may also face violence. Sadly, this isn't a lone story. Across the globe, journalists are being threatened, abused and killed just for doing their job. Last week, the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan released a report which found that there had been 173 human rights violations against media workers and journalists from August last year to June of this year. In this edition of Fourth Estate, we're very lucky to be joined by Lynn O'Donnell herself to discuss the challenges both local and foreign media workers face when it comes to reporting in conflict zones. Lynn O'Donnell, a very warm welcome to Fourth Estate from Islamabad. Thanks, Tina. It's nice to be with you. So you were recently detained by the Taliban and were basically threatened with not only imprisonment, but also violence. If you didn't publicly retract some of your own reports, your own reporting, could you tell us about that experience? Yeah, well, I don't want to um, put uh, any undue emphasis on the violence. They were abusive. They were terribly rude to me. And yes, they detained me for a number of hours and said that they would send me to jail if they... Um, if I didn't make a written and public confession that all my journalism was bogus. Um, Yeah, I mean, really, the way they treated me as a foreign correspondent is more indicative of, you know, the tightening of um, control over information that comes out of Afghanistan. The domestic media has already been pretty much muzzled, um, well, eradicated, really, and this trend began as they... Um, started last year their um, rollout across the country, taking control militarily of districts and cities and then provinces. Local media outlets were closed down. Journalists were jailed and beaten and in some cases killed. And um, many went into hiding and many have fled the country. And in the little time that I was able to spend in Kabul last week, I, I did meet with people who are involved in independent monitoring of the media sector in Afghanistan, and they say that while they're not making their reports public anymore, uh, the situation has not changed. Um, you have uh, now you have self self censorship by those people who remain in the sector, and um, the abuse of media, local media people, um, continues unabated. It's a pretty serious situation, Tina. In multiple interviews, you stated that the Taliban asked for for details of your local sources. How did you protect their identities in in that situation? And was this demand a factor to why you you won't be returning to Afghanistan in the near future? No, um, my impression of the people who who I was interacting with over the 
course of two days was that they thought that this was a reasonable demand to make. And one of the stories in particular that made them um, uh, a little bit annoyed and twitchy with me was about um, the practice of forced marriages of young women and girls, um, which um, I had written about. And really, it's effectively sex slavery, and I put it in those terms. Um, they said to me they wanted to know um, uh, details of the people that I had spoken to. They wanted all voice recordings, video, um, and um, and my notes. And I said to them that everybody quoted in that story had used their real name and had been willing to go on the record, and that it was their job to go and find out um, whether or not um, the story stood up. Um, everybody was on the record. So, you know, if they can't find them, then that's not really my problem. The other story they took exception to was about LGBT people who are under a lot of threat, many of them who are still in Afghanistan are living in fear of their lives and they are being regularly evacuated, many of them to Canada and to European countries for their own safety. And um, I was told in these words, there are no gays in Afghanistan. And um, the man who was at the head of this right. um, by the intelligence agency uh, to get me to retract and admit what a bad journalist I am and that I've made everything up, told me if I find out anyone is gay, I will kill them. And then leading on from that, I was asked why I referred to the Taliban as extremists. And, I, you know, I just pointed out the pretty extremist positions that they had just displayed to me on um, the existence of LGBTQ people in Afghanistan. So it just seemed to be me to be very... Um, defensive, cack-handed, mm. um, assuming that their position was right and not really understanding the role of media. So just to, to backtrack a little bit, so obviously with um, the reports that they were finding um, issue with or they were taking issue with, these were uh, these were previous reports that you had done because you actually, you've reported on Afghanistan for over 20 years and you were bureau chief for, for two different news agencies, the French AFP and the American Associated Press. Um, so you, you've actually spent a lot of time living in Kabul, yeah, that's right. I have. Yeah, and and these were when and you left Kabul last year as as it fell to the Taliban, correct? Yes, I went back last year for three months as a as a freelancer, mostly for Foreign Policy magazine with my friend and colleague Masoud Hosseini. He's Afghanistan's Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. We've worked together for more than a decade, and we went back together both as freelancers um, and reported from various parts of the country as the as the Taliban were taking over. And we left on the fifteenth of August. We think probably the last commercial flight to leave. Kabul before the Taliban came in a few hours later and effectively declared victory. So, yeah, quite some time on the ground in Afghanistan, running big, busy frontline bureaus. And as I said, three months on the ground with Masood last year. And what compelled you to go back this time? Well, it's been a year and um, I thought that um, there would be a spike up in interest in Afghanistan because we're coming up to the one-year anniversary and we seem to like these these points of light that um, that uh, can give us a perspective on what's happened in the recent past. And um, an awful lot has happened in Afghanistan, and I wanted to go back and see it for myself. I'm, I seem to be considered as something of an expert, although I don't consider myself to be at all. But I'm introduced on radio and TV as 
an expert on the region and I don't really think I can continue to um, command any respect in in that way unless I, you know, have my own experience. And Mm. so I went back to meet with people that I know um, who are still there and to see what the situation is and report on it, yeah, one year later. What are your current concerns for, for press freedom in the country and local journalists in Afghanistan? Because surely you yourself were frightened for your own safety uh, when you when you returned and were basically taken into custody by the Taliban. You know, I think I'd be stupid and a little bit reckless if I said that I didn't have any level of fear. Um, of course I did, um, because it was a totally unpredictable situation. Um, And the way the Taliban have been trying to run the country over the past year is to consolidate power through fear. And people that I managed to speak to spontaneously described the situation to me as a reign of terror. And what that really describes is um, a squeeze on information and freedom of thought and movement. And I, I knew that I was taking a risk when I picked up my visa, a valid media visa at the embassy Um, Afghanistan embassy in London, they asked me to sign an affidavit to say that I accepted all the risk of going. Um, I didn't think really that I would be physically abused, uh, beaten up, you know, strung up by my thumbs in a dark cell underground. I didn't really think that that would happen Um, because I'm a white Westerner and my privilege is built into my DNA and they want um, to be respected by the international community. They want diplomatic recognition. And I thought that, you know, my, my status as a foreigner and a quite high-profile reporter on the region mm-hmm. and Afghanistan specifically was my protection. But that said, um, Tina, it was very unpredictable. I didn't really know what they were going to do. When they told me that they had to, that I had to make a written public apology or go to jail, you know, that possibility to me at that time was very real. Mm. Um And like I said, my privilege is being a foreigner, but you asked me about the status of media in Afghanistan and for journalists. Um, There is no free media and journalists cannot function as journalists. But for them, it is particularly fearful because and awful because we're in a part of the world where, you know, China, Pakistan, Iran, the Central Asian states that are influenced by uh, Russia, they do not, none of these regions None of these countries have a free media. In fact, they're very hostile to people who are advocates of freedom of speech and freedom of thought. And in the midst of this for 20 years, Afghanistan had um, a a media sector, a news sector that took pride in being comparable to the best in the world. And they really were. You know, they were fearless and they they understood their responsibility and... um, All of that has been crushed. The United States spent a billion dollars in just five years uh, developing um, a free media sector that would promote um, the the freedoms that we take for granted in places mostly take for granted or maybe increasingly um, less uh, do. Uh, But anyway, they, um, they, they, um, they really knew what they had and they knew how precious it was and they saw it being taken away from them in real time and now it's gone. Um, There are people who are, um, business have made a lot of money out of that, you know, the development of free media in Afghanistan who like to say that um, reporters can function undeterred, but it's a lie. There um, There is no free media left in Afghanistan. The light's gone off. 
And I understand they also brought up uh, an incident that happened back in 2016 uh, when they were able to uh, basically express their dissatisfaction with the media reports that had come out of a, a television station uh, within within Kabul. Um, yeah, well, it was it was they were right to be annoyed about a particular report that appeared on Tolo Television when they were um, covering live a siege of a northern city called Kunduz that the Taliban took control of for three or four days. Um, the television station reported incorrectly on Taliban activities, and the Taliban demanded a retraction and an apology. And this is something, as we know, Tina, happens in news organisations all over the world. You get it wrong the next day. There it is in corrections and amplifications or whatever you want to call it. Uh, we were wrong about this. Uh, that's, what, um, that's what the Taliban wanted. And for some reason, the management at Tolo refused to retract or apologise. And the Taliban continuously over the following months um, continued to demand and then issued threats. And they put the television station compound under surveillance. People working at the compound at the television station um, uh, repeatedly begged management to send them home in taxis rather than in the quite obvious buses that the staff had and um, Tolo uh, didn't do that and one evening, um, I think it was July, um, the Taliban sent a suicide bomber against a busload of employees who had nothing to do with the news side, they worked in graphics etc and and killed seven of them on the night and probably much more later and um, Uh, The spokesman for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs brought this up in our conversation by way of branding me as a journalist, so-called, who who, uh, publishes false news about the Taliban. And he said that that was an attack that this is what he said to you that you were you were uh, publishing false information about them. Oh, everything I did was made up. Um, I my sources didn't exist. Um, they he told me that the securities um, uh, people, um, the, the general directorate of intelligence, as they call themselves now, don't recognise you as a journalist. Mm. And so, by bringing up this suicide attack that killed a lot of Tolo TV people, he was um, lumping me in with um, reporters of fake mm. news and telling me that this is how we deal with you. It was very much a threat. And you obviously brought up, you know, they killed a lot of innocent people in, in, in that attack. He told me about the, ta- the attack and he said, and we are proud of that. I said, you killed a lot of innocent people. He said, and we are proud of that. I said, one of the people who was killed was a friend of mine. He said, and we are proud of that. Mm. How do you think the, the Taliban of today is different from the Taliban pre the American invasion? Um, I think they're really quite sophisticated. There was a lot of effort, um, Tina, before the takeover, but when it became pretty clear that um, the Taliban were converging for a victory um, by um, academics and military leaders and political leaders um, to say that this was a changed Taliban, this was 2.0 and we'll be able to um, deal with them, they're reasonable now, they want to send girls to school, they want to deal with the international community. Um, and really anybody who'd been paying attention and in whose interest it was not to say that these were, you know, the good guys are coming, um, knew that that wasn't the case, and that includes about 38 million Afghans and certainly people in the, working for the previous government, in NGOs, in um, the civil society sector, journalists, whatever, everybody knew what was coming, women especially, they'd been there before. 
Um, I think that they are worse. I think they came in with an agenda. They'd been um, uh, had made very good friends with people who taught them how to negotiate and make themselves sound good and present themselves as um, uh, reasonable and competent uh, future governors of the country, uh, future stewards of the governance, if you like. And But they came in with lists of names of people they immediately started hunting down. They immediately closed the schools to all, all children, but they've kept them closed to uh, secondary age girls. Um, journalism, we've seen that snuffed out. So they came in, I think, with an agenda that really makes them much worse and much more dangerous than they were during the 1990s, 96 to 2001. Then they were just sort of incompetent and feeling their way and making friends with the wrong people. Now they've got an agenda. You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network. My guest this week is foreign correspondent Lynn O'Donnell. This week we're talking about the challenges of local media workers and foreign correspondents like herself reporting in conflict zones. Uh, Lynn, I want to go back a a little bit. How did you yourself uh, become a foreign correspondent and and what was the impetus for it? I went to Hong Kong and um, I met people who told me about... um, China Daily, which is the English language daily published alongside the People's Daily in Beijing uh, by the um, by the Chinese Communist Party, and I, I thought that China would be a very interesting place to be in the aftermath of the Tiananmen crackdown of, of um, June the fourth in nineteen eighty nine, and so um, uh, people that I met in Hong Kong told me how to go about making contact, and um, I. I contacted the editors at China Daily and asked if I could go up there and work for them and they sent me a visa straight away. It was a bit hard to find foreigners to go and, you know, make the the propaganda look like proper um, journalistic English. Mm. And so I went up there and worked there for a year and started picking up strings and then Reuters took me on after my one-year contract with China Daily um, expired and um, I started working for Reuters and I stayed with them and became a, a um, Hong Kong and Shanghai-based correspondent for Reuters for about six years. So over the last three decades, have you yourself seen a, a culling of, of press freedom, not just in Afghanistan and other conflict zones, but also, you know, in the Western world? I mean, in 2019 in Australia, there was the AFP raids. The, the AFP uh, decided to raid the homes of a journalist, Annika Smethurst, as well as the ABC headquarters in Sydney. Now, they were citing leaked classified government documents as their reasoning or their justification for, for carrying out those raids. It seems a bit rich when the Western world sort of jumps up and down as well about press freedoms in, in these basically hot zones when it seems to be something that's deteriorating in the Western world quite quite rapidly. Yes, absolutely. We're now the enemy of the people, aren't we? And mm. um, I think that the other thing that happened at the same time all of this was going on was a consolidation of newsrooms. There was no um, business model. You know, um, I heard it described once as if you imagine that you go into a Starbucks every day or, you know, any other cafe chain um, and the guy behind the counter hands you a grande latte with a shot of caramel goo in it free every morning and then you know you do this for five years 10 years 15 years and then one day you go in and he says that'll be five bucks please that's essentially what's happened with the news industry we gave everything away 
And then suddenly we put up paywalls and people think, why should I have to pay for it? It happens to me all the time. I work for organisations that are behind paywalls and people say to me, I can't, can you send it to me? I can't find it. And I'm like, you know, um, this is how I get paid. You pay for my content so that my editors can, you know, put a rather small amount of money in my bank account for the work that I've done. There is a complete void of understanding that what we do is not for free and we also have rents and um, appetites that have to be looked after. And so um, what we have seen over the past 20, 25 years is is a complete undermining of the value of journalism. And once it's gone, it's very, very difficult to get back. And what happened in Australia with those raids last year, or twenty, whenever it was, and what's happening in, in 2019, and what's happening now in Afghanistan with the complete eradication of the media, I do not see anybody coming out and saying, you know, like a prime minister or a president or a community leader like the Pope or, you know, I don't see anything from anybody whose voice has influence um, saying, turn the light back on because if we don't see what's going mm. on through the work of people like you and me, then then anything can happen, you know. It's like shining a light on the dark corners where the bad guys want to, want to torture people because of what they think, because of what they believe. And our job is to make sure those lights stay on. But, you know, there's been a huge and overwhelming mm. outpouring of sympathy and support for me because the Taliban took me away for four hours. Um, the Taliban are, you know, they're nasty, they're vicious, they're venal, they're sinister, and yeah, they shouldn't have done what they did to me. But they've been doing this to Afghan journalists for more than a year. Why did it take somebody bold like me, with a couple of passports, who can get on a plane and go to shine a light on what's been happening there? Why is it that the people in our craft, right up to the top, I don't hear any newspaper editors or you know mm-hmm. big honchos in running radio networks bleating about it either? Isn't it awful what's happening in Afghanistan? I don't hear that. Isn't it awful what hap- what's been happening in China for you know since um, 1980? When was it? 89. What's been happening there? I worked in the Chinese media for a year. You know, I saw the suppression um, firsthand in real time in front of my eyes. But I don't, you know, there's a young Australian guy called Drew Pavlou who seems to be the only person in the world who's shouting about what's happening to Uyghur Chinese. I mean, the entire Muslim world has shut down on that one. There are fellow Muslims as long as there's something in it for us. But, hey, hang on, China's got a lot of money and investment and power and a very loud voice, so we're not going to talk about what it, what the Chinese state is doing to eradicate the voice, the bodies of Chinese Muslims. Why is that? It's just absolute cowardice and rapacious greed for power and money, and it makes me sick and it makes me very angry and it makes me feel that the tiny weeny amount of time that I'm having a very difficult time coping with because of the, you know, the time that people, you know, this is nothing against you, Tina, but you're taking a lot of my time. I need to work. I, I'm saying the same thing over and over again. It's bleat, bleat, bleat. What's going to happen? Why are we being allowed to disappear? Mm. I, I noticed one of your, well, the pinned tweet on, on your Twitter profile. First they came for the journalists. No one knows what happened after that. Very aptly put, what I want to ask you No about- one knows what's in Afghanistan because the Taliban were allowed to come for the journalists. Mm. I want to ask now about moral injury, 
recently the, the New Statesman reported that moral injury is, is the next big challenge for journalism, uh, more so than PTSD. Now, journalist uh, Clotilda Redfern states that many many don't know about the concept of moral injury, and it's explained as a situation where journalists reporting in conflict zones or disasters face tough moral dilemmas by stepping out of their journalistic role. She says not enough training on ethical dilemmas is included in journalism courses, and the culture of journalism encourages avoidance. What are your thoughts on that as a, as a foreign correspondent? Um, what does this mean? That I'm, if I'm covering a famine, I should um, adopt a kitty to take home and feed? I don't even know what that means. My tax dollars, which I pay in a number of countries, go to funding enormous um, uh, international multilateral organisations whose job it is to do that on my behalf. My job as a journalist is to report not only on the on what's going on on the ground, but the way they do that job as well. And I'm talking about the United Nations and, and all its um, all its agencies. I think that each each of us have our job, and my job is to hold people accountable and shine a light and tell people what's going on, um, not to adopt a kitty to take them home and feed them. If somebody in in my profession wants to do that, that's their personal mm. choice. But I hope I do the job that 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 I. It says on my tin that I do. Should there be more training, do you think, then, or or guidelines to establish what the expectation is of of journalists? A a 2017 Reuters study found that many journalists covering refugee crises have have felt compelled to to step outside their traditional role as, as neutral observer by helping refugees. I think that's a personal choice. Yeah, yeah. I think saying, um, I think writing articles and making documentaries and speaking on the radio about um, the plight of jet refugees, how they're treated by governments and international organisations, and why they are refugees in the first place, and what's not being done to prevent the flow of refugees is much more important. And that's the job of journalism. Hmm. How do you, and I always really wonder this when it comes to um, foreign correspondence, how do you struggle at all with? the both sidesism that we're supposed to enact as as journalists that we're supposed to uphold Christian Amanpour talks about this all the time about she got to a stage where she realized she could no longer create false moral equivalencies that there were points where there really was a there is a a definite aggressor and there's a a definite victim in in a conflict do do you do you at all grapple with that or have you grappled in that uh, with that at any point in your career well, you know, when I was um, being detained by the Taliban, they said to me, um, why do you call us terrorists and extremists? Why don't you um, uh, talk about the terrorism of the United States, of the United mm. Kingdom, of the of the coalition of NATO? Mm. And I said, you go back and take a look at the body of my work for over my whole career. Nobody is safe, you know. If, <laughs> if That's what journalism is. So, you know, you can pick out one thing and say, but you're just having a go at the Taliban or you're just having a go at the UN. Everybody gets a go, you know. I don't leave anybody out. Do you think foreign journalists' relationships with, with local journalists and fixers have changed in, in recent times? Or do you think the COVID-19 pandemic resulted in a, a new type of collaboration? I don't really know about that, Tina. I'm sorry, but I can tell you that, um, you know, I couldn't function as a foreign correspondent without my colleagues mm. on the ground, wherever that may be. Mm. And when I was running um, bureaus in China as well as in um, 
Afghanistan, as you mentioned, um, really, I thought that I was just the traffic policeman, you know, standing in the middle of the <laughs> intersection and making sure that um, uh, my colleagues, um, we, you know, we were all equals. Mm-hmm. I was just called the bureau chief and my job was to make sure that um, all the traffic went through that intersection smoothly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So oh, there's a and there's something that I'm sure they never they gave you training for in in, in journalism school. Um, of course. <laughs> so in your expenses, forget I, it. <laughs> so well, as you've just mentioned, fixes are, are vital to journalism and, and to foreign correspondents, but they face many challenges themselves, such as. Uh, often lower pay and, and recognition, less recognition. There are obvious safety risks and harsh consequences for their reporting. What role do you think foreign correspondents have in ensuring mutual respect and, and the safety of that of, of their colleagues? Or is the responsibility at the, more so at the feet of the media outlets, do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My what I really took very seriously the part of my job as a bureau chief for big international news organisations, um, to be an advocate for the locals. Um, you know, they're, they're mm-hmm. vastly, um, they earn vastly less money than the international who, you know, you go in as an international in a big um, job like that and um, you're very well paid by any standards mm-hmm. really, I think, and um, uh, you have privileges um, that uh, that the locals don't have, and um, I was I always thought that m- part of my job was to advocate for better conditions for the people who worked in the bureau alongside me and with me and for me. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a responsibility for sure. And I would like to see uh, the news organisations treat local employees um, as equal employees rather than calling them locals you know I think mm-hmm. I think it's our privilege to have people work for and with us and we should take that seriously and certainly show them um, equal respect. Well it only informs uh, I guess the, the journalism and the work of the foreign correspondents even even more so and ends up really informing the public to a greater to a greater degree than otherwise. We're seeing opportunities for freelancers and, and local media workers arise. However, they often don't receive the same training or protections that in-house journos have. You've worked in many editorial roles. What what discussion do you think needs to be had to, to bridge this gap and ensure quality journalism and safety of all journos? I'd like to see news organisations drop the pretense about freelancing. They seem to think that the free in freelancing means free. Um I, I find, um, you know, I work as hard, yeah, I work as hard now as a freelancer as I did running big, busy bureaus, um, and it can still take me a week to uh, do a story that I will be get paid, I'll get paid a pittance for. I don't have any protections or insurance or, you know, I'm really, uh, I'm really cheap. <laughs> um, and um, I think that this has become the journalists and journalism has become a victim of the imperative for profit. You know, I'd like to be paid for the quality and quantity of the work that I do as if I was a staff person. But, you know, we should all be on staff. It's the gig economy mm. and, and, and you know, it's like getting a call from the Times in London or Reuters or whatever to say, are you available tomorrow night to do a shift? 
that will pay you a few hundred dollars. You know, it's just it's just not right. Expand your um, your your head count and give people proper jobs and pay them for the experience and the ability that they have and have spent entire careers building. You know, this is uh, we're in a craft that that needs and should value experience and knowledge and contacts and ability and it doesn't it 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 values fast availability and um uh payments that haven't really moved for i don't know 15 or 20 years 50 cents a word a dollar a word if you're really lucky i mean woohoo you know it's um and then um payments columbia journalism review still hasn't paid me for work that i did years ago um you know the checks in the mail so you know this is this is what we have to put up with and i think that it is behoven <laughs> on the news organizations to start treating us properly you know the bbc's um director of news is being paid hundreds of thousands of pounds a year where people who put their lives in danger are on tens that imbalance is is not sustainable for uh, you know quality output over the long term could I take from this then that you yourself would, as a freelance journalist, would you like, do, do you prefer having a permanent contract with an outlet or do you like the freedom that freelancing gives you? Well, it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Having a big chunk of change mm. land in your bank account once a month is very comforting. Um, uh, I do like, for instance, you know, the movements that, that, um, that Masood and I made over the three months last year up to August the 15th, we could possibly have done if we were working as staff for international news agencies the security considerations and the Mm -hmm. and the um insurance considerations would have made that impossible um but we were able to um calculate our own risk rather than leave our safety in the hands of people who don't understand that situation as much as we do um but um uh yeah i do i do like the security of um of um of uh, having um a, a a job and also i find that as a that as a that as a freelancer um you don't really count in um editorial decision making um mm-hmm. you know there's there's always the inside staff team and and i miss that as well mm. do you think we could see a decline in parachute journalists do you think their role is still important Oh, yeah, but what you're getting now is parachute journalists who are cheap and have no experience, and this has been the case since... And don't know the region often, oftentimes. Yeah, maybe, or maybe they do, but they just don't have experience, for instance, in a hot war zone or, um, you know, they'll just work for whatever pittance is chucked their way, and, and that's really undermining as well people who have experience who might be more expensive, and I think it's irresponsible of news editors and news managers mm. to do that. We've seen multiple restrictions of international press in Afghanistan in the, in the past year, along with local newsrooms shutting their doors as well. Where do you see press freedom going in the future? And do you think international pressure could could alleviate some of this or, or have some sort of an impact? Yeah, well, you know, the international community is enabling the Taliban. Um, so... This has been going on. I've been writing about it for yonks. I mean, you know, everybody knew that this was going to happen if they'd been paying attention or if they cared. So, you know, what was left behind was proved to be utterly unsustainable. Institutions just evaporated. Um, uh, Sectors evaporated. There's no civil society. There's no journalism. So, um, you know, what I'd like to hear is a little bit of um, 
outrage, opprobrium, demand for accountability um, from the international community rather than sending in food and other assistance that goes through Taliban-affiliated NGOs so they can take 25% off the top and um, and continue to stay alive, living on the backs and the bodies of other people. You know, let's get real about it. Everything has disappeared, everything, and there's no light to to shine on it, but we know it. Everybody knows it. Tom West knows it. The Australian government knows it. How about some policy imagination? You know, put some pressure on these guys. Why is it being allowed to prevail? It's been a year. We saw it coming. I think it's shameful, really shameful. Lynn O'Donnell, where to next for you? Do you see yourself going back to or returning to Kabul at any point? Well, yeah, I don't see that this is a sustainable regime. And really, they've shot themselves in the foot by giving me a global platform to talk about the the true nature of of um, their uh, cack-handed attempt second time around mm. to run the country. Um, well, it certainly hasn't knows. shut you up, so. Well, well, why would it, you know? Yeah. It's like they, you know, they wanted to shut me up because they can't shut me. You know, it's just like you're protesting too much, trying to tell me that I'm writing fake news and I make everything up. Everybody knows that that's not true. Mm. And now you're just letting, giving everyone an opportunity for to 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 say they all know that it's not true. So, you know, let's get rid of them. This is, you know, we're all supposed to be objective, but we do know as human beings the difference between right and wrong and allowing this to prevail is wrong on so many levels. (laughs) Look, Lynn O'Donnell, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on Fourth Estate uh, from Islamabad and and dealing with the time difference and a very busy schedule, no doubt. Um, It's been a pleasure talking to you. And for me too, Tina. Thank you for your time and your tenacity. I I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. A big thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks, as always, to my producer, Marlene Even, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, stay safe, and catch us next week on Fourth Estate.